I, I have to offer only what your word says. And so I pray, God, that you will help us to hear the message of this text, that your spirit inspired for us to hear, and that you will speak it to our hearts in our setting today. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. We're talking about Samaritans and the Spirit. Now, Pastor Jessica can testify that I have waffled over today's text. For some years, I've been eager to preach on Acts chapter 2, when the time would be ideal, but I wasn't feeling it for today. And given our current theme of discipleship, I planned to speak from Mark chapter 8 and Jesus' teachings about discipleship. But learning that today we are seeking God for racial reconciliation, I considered addressing that topic from Ephesians chapter 2 or from Romans, since ethnic reconciliation is a key feature of Paul's gospel. Unable to decide between Mark and Ephesians, I compromised, so we're in Acts 8. So, uh, Samaria had received the the word of God. And, oh, I see. Okay, it's working up there, not up there. Samaria had received the word of God in chapter 8 and verse 14. And we see that God uses little people. This Philip isn't an apostle. But Acts before Peter does here. So Peter's the famous one, but Philip is really the one who paves the way. And later on in this chapter, he's going to be the one who paves the way in terms of reaching Gentiles. You know, as far as the Jerusalem church knew, Cornelius was the first Gentile Christian. But we know from Acts chapter 8 that that's not true. The first Gentile Christian, in fact, was the African court official. And also, he gets, Philip gets to Caesarea, before Peter does and evangelizes Caesarea. So the reason he gets there first is because he has fewer prejudices to overcome. Now, this was a major event that challenged Judean and Samaritan prejudices. They had alternative holy sites. Uh, you, You remember John chapter four, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans, we worshiped past tense on this mountain. It's past tense because the Jewish people had destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. There was a history of divided holy places between the two of them, and uh, Samaritans had also desecrated the Jewish holy site in Jerusalem. But Jesus, of course, says that the true place of worship will neither be in Jerusalem nor in Mount Gerizim, but in the spirit and in truth. Samaritans mocked Galilean pilgrims on their way to the Jerusalem temple. But Samaritans were to receive salvation through the Jewish people. Now that was something that would have really been uh, shocking to the Samaritans. And so to, to capture what this text means for us today, we have to capture some of the shock that would have been involved in that. Samaritans had rejected the Old Testament after the Pentateuch. They accepted only the Pentateuch. David, the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, none of that did they accept as for themselves. A small analogy for the Samaritans receiving the word of God from 
Judeans. Today, I mean, we might think of Israelis and Palestinians evangelizing each other. But here, let's say if you're a Democrat and somebody comes to evangelize you with a, uh, wearing a MAGA hat, or if you're a Republican and somebody comes to evangelize you wearing a Feel the Burn t-shirt, uh, you know, that, that might give us some sense of some of the barriers that were involved in this. But God's spirit transcends any kind of barrier. And for Judeans to affirm the Samaritan conversion also requires them surmounting barriers of their own prejudices. Jewish sages despised Samaritan circumcision in the name of Gerizim. Now, they probably wouldn't make, well, they didn't make the Samaritans get recircumcised, but to believe that the people from this background could become part of the people of God was an amazing thing that God was doing in their midst. Now, if we look at, at uh, where this fits in the context of Luke Acts as a whole for the Samaritans receiving the word of God, let's look at, at, at how Luke expects us to see this as it's positioned throughout the context of, of Luke Acts together. In Luke chapter 9, verse 52, they come to a Samaritan village, and the Samaritans reject Jesus because, why? He's going toward the temple. He's going to Jerusalem. James and John want to call on fire from heaven, like Elijah did in the Old Testament. But Jesus rebukes them. And then we have this story of the Good Samaritan, which would have been considered an oxymoron. It's really answering the question, who is my neighbor? And the answer Jesus is giving is your neighbor might be somebody you don't even like. It's, it's based on Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe says, well, who is my neighbor? I don't have to love everybody, do I? And Jesus knows the context of Leviticus 19.18. The context of it includes 19.34, where it says you're to love the stranger or the alien, the, the immigrant who's in the land as you love yourself. And then out of 10 lepers who were healed, sorry that this picture I think has 12, but out of 10 lepers who were healed, only the Samaritan returns to give thanks. And so things are building towards what's going to take place here in Acts chapter eight with the Samaritans receiving the word of God. And this also fits what you have in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter one and verse eight, where the message is for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we see this also in 931 and 15.3, where the church in Samaria is going strong after this point. So in verse 15, it says that when they come down, they've, they've heard that they've received the word of God. This is an amazing thing. They come so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. We can't do without this. We absolutely need the Spirit. It's not... The work to which God has called us is not something that we can do in our own strength. And this also reflects a theme throughout Luke Acts. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so what do Jesus' followers do in the book of Acts? Right at the beginning, they're asking. So before you have Acts chapter 2, for those of you who are good with math, you have Acts chapter 1, where they're praying together. And as they're praying, as a response to that, it says in, in 114, they're constantly devoting themselves to prayer. 
God pours out his spirit. And then again in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. And we see this some other times in Luke Acts as well. So there's a, a pattern. It doesn't happen, uh, it's not always preceded by prayer, but usually in the book of Acts, prayer, a season of prayer precedes the outpouring of the Spirit and corporate outpourings of the Spirit. And we also see that even in our own history here in Wilmore, where there have been multiple revivals at Asbury. And one of the revivals in, in 1970, uh, one of our, our uh, seminary graduates here was also a professor of uh, French there, Anna Gulick, who was, who was my neighbor. And she reports that there were a lot of people on campus just spontaneously praying before this outpouring of the Spirit. Well, corporate outpourings of the Spirit uh, especially happen among outsiders. That is, not the people who think that they deserve it most, but the people who are desperate enough to realize that they need God's presence. So most of these corporate outpourings of the Spirit, like among the Samaritans, happen among desperate people. We see it in the, in the fields, in the Wesleyan revivals. We see it among miners in the Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905. We see it among outcasts and child widows and orphans at Pandita Ramabai's orphanage in India in 1905. You see it in the wake of the Nigerian Civil War in 1967 and 1970, the revival that happens there, because God is near the lowly, but he's far from the proud. When we're desperate enough to recognize our need for God's power, no matter what the cost, and the cost especially is the cost of humbling ourselves to recognize that the Spirit is God's gift, as Acts 8 will go on to reinforce in the case of Simon thinking he can buy it. Wholesale dependence on God himself through whatever means he chooses. Now here, the means that he chooses, they have to receive the Spirit through ethnically and culturally different vessels. So to give another small analogy, there was a Southern Holiness minister by the name of G.B. Cashwell, uh, Cashwell was, was white. Um, God used him greatly to cause a lot of people, thousands of people, to come into a new experience of the Spirit. But himself, for him to come into this experience of the Spirit, it cost him something because he heard about this revival that was taking place at Azusa Street. Now, you may have heard of the Azusa Street revival. This is the one that, that sparked the uh, Pentecostal and charismatic uh, later, the charismatic movements estimated about 600 million people today. So over the course of a century, it became the second largest movement in Christendom next to the Roman Catholic Church, with which it overlaps. Uh, a, it's, it's a global religious movement with significant African-American origins because the leader at the Azusa Street Revival was William Seymour, whose parents had been born in slavery. And Cashwell went there to, to receive a blessing from the Holy Spirit, but he was uncomfortable because all the people who would lay hands on him were African-American. And Cashwell, 
it was, it was deep-rooted in his southern up, upbringing at, at this time in history that, that he just, you know, he loved them as brothers and sisters in Christ, but he didn't want them to lay hands on him. But finally, his desire for the Holy Spirit overcame his prejudices, and he said, please, pray for me. They laid hands on him. He had a remarkable experience with the Holy Spirit that then he went and carried back to his own church circles. Well, in, in chapter 8 and verse 16, we see that they were only baptized in water. They, they were baptized in water. They'd accepted Jesus. They believed Jesus. They believed the gospel. It says, but they hadn't received the Spirit. Now, this is really curious. How could they not have received the Spirit? Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So how come they hadn't received yet? Uh, here it comes after baptism. In Acts 10, verse 47, it comes before baptism. And maybe what it's saying to us is that God doesn't like to fit in our boxes, and that the pattern is that we can't always predict the pattern. Let God do what God wants to do. <laughs> he often surprises us. In fact, that's the one pattern is all through Acts, he keeps surprising his own people. I, I believe, and, and this, is, this is debatable, trying to fit all the biblical data together, but I, I believe that Luke refers to a particular aspect of the Spirit's work here. Luke's emphasis on the Spirit is stated up front in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you to be witnesses. And so he's not saying they weren't saved yet, they, they have the Spirit in that sense, but he's, he's speaking of an empowerment of the Spirit, which is theologically implicit in our conversion, but we don't always experience all that's implicit in our conversion at our conversion. Um, we can think of it as an analogy like this way. Um, Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that we are dead to sin in Christ. You've been baptized into Christ, you're dead to sin. How many of you have sinned since your conversion. Uh, forget it, I'm leaving this book. No. Uh, so, but as we learn to reckon ourselves dead to sin, Romans 6, 11, then we, then we walk in the reality that's already there. Well, in the same way, God's spirit became completely available to us at our conversion. But whatever the nomenclature, different denominations have different ways of putting it, but how many of us recognize that, yeah, in some sense, we receive the Spirit at conversion, but we can also have subsequent experiences with the Spirit after conversion. And people debate about the nature of those, but as far as I can see in the text, let's welcome the Spirit for as many experiences as He's willing to give us, and I suspect He's willing to give us a lot more than what we have. I always want to walk more and more closely to the Holy Spirit and, and depend on His power. So. Let's not be too proud of what we've already experienced to welcome more from the Holy Spirit. So they began laying hands on them, it says in verse 17. Now this is remarkable too. It's one thing to say, okay, well, they've, they've come into the faith. It's another thing for them to lay hands on them so that they might receive the Spirit. Because remember again, Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you so that you'll be be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the othermost parts of the earth. The Spirit in Acts 
involves empowerment to speak for God. And when they're laying hands on the Samaritans so they can receive the Spirit, they're saying, we are receiving you as partners, as fellow missionaries, as sharers in the mission. This is not a paternalistic model of mission controlled from Jerusalem. The New Samaritan believers receive power to share in this mission. The Spirit empowers us for missional holiness throughout Acts. For example, Acts 4.31 that we already looked at, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. 8.29, it was the Spirit who said to Philip, go join yourself to this chariot for the African court official. In chapter 9 and verse 17, it was uh, Ananias came and laid hands on Saul so that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the first uh, major minister to the Gentiles is filled with the Holy Spirit so that he can fulfill that purpose. Chapter 10 and verse 19, the Spirit is the one who tells Peter to welcome Cornelius' Gentile messengers. Chapter 10, verses 44 and 45, the gift of the Spirit confirms that God has welcomed Gentiles among his people. And when Peter is called on the carpet in the next chapter saying, how could you eat with these uncircumcised Gentiles? He says, first of all, the Holy Spirit told me to, and second, the Holy Spirit confirmed it because he fell on them. Chapter 13 and verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then in verse four, they were sent out by the Spirit to this mission, crossing not just the barrier with the Samaritans, but even to the Gentiles. And in chapter 15, in verse 28 of Acts, the Holy Spirit leads the Mother Church to welcome the Gentiles without circumcision. The Spirit keeps forcing God's people to cross all the boundaries that they have, all their cultural and ethnic and linguistic boundaries, because they're called to reach the ends of the earth. And we have been blessed because the Spirit keeps causing that to happen. That's how we receive the gospel. And, and what did the, the coming of the Spirit mean in light, of, in light of Old Testament promises? The Spirit was to be poured out in the last days on God's people, especially. <clears throat> Isaiah 44, 3, I'll pour out my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Ezekiel 36, 27 and 28, I'll put my spirit within you. Then you'll live in the land that I gave to your ancestors. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3 and verse 1. Skipping some in between, but then afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. For then in those days and in that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. So what we see by, by these people receiving the spirit, by the Samaritans receiving the spirit is that the Samaritans become members of God's people. And we see it again in Acts chapter 10, when, when Gentiles become part of God's people, or already starting in, in Acts 8, 27 to 40, where this African court official, who is described five times as a eunuch, meaning he can't, he can't be accepted into the people of God, but he is accepted because he receives the true Messiah. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the ends of the earth. Luke's audience knew about China. They knew about India. 
They, they knew about Northern Europe. They did not know about the U.S., but God did, so even Americans can be saved and receive the empowerment of the Spirit. Let's humble ourselves to receive a message that comes to us from the Middle East that's been mediated to us through many other cultures and peoples on the way to us, and to receive the Spirit that comes directly from God, the Spirit that will not stay within the old wineskins, But as we continually listen to the Spirit, the Spirit will continually be forcing us across barriers to listen to one another and to grow together as the body of Christ. Whatever our previous experience with the Spirit, let's welcome Him to do ever more in our lives, in our communities. And after I pray, um, we'll we'll be led in, in song again. God, we need you. Pour out your spirit among us, Lord. Make us what you've called us to be. Break down the barriers. Lord, if I have found favor in your sight through Jesus Christ, hear my prayer. And Lord, hear our prayer, for we are your people. Make us one. Transform us. Break down all the barriers. Give us humble hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.